Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. It's an idea that's been circulating for years. Stop the planet from warming by reflecting the sun back into space. Known as solar geoengineering, the UN has now weighed in. And the message? Hold on. The concern is some may see it as a quick fix and stop taking action now to mitigate climate change. This horse is well and truly bolted. Research is being undertaken in a number of locations. We'll hear about calls for more research and global rules about how it can and should be used. Then, forecasting the future for species at risk. How scientists are using technology to chart a survival path for the boreal caribou and how it can help people too. After that... Younger people have been so bombarded by all of this influencer marketing, influencing, and we're kind of sick of it. How the trend de-influencing is taking off on TikTok and what's driving it. Plus, it's time to celebrate International Women's Day by looking at the work women are doing to fight for climate justice. Welcome to What on Earth. We bring you a world of climate solutions. I'm Renee Filipponi, and for Laura Lynch. In recent days, the United Nations Environment Program released a report focusing on a drastic and unproven idea for climate action. It's called solar radiation modification, and it could, quite literally, alter the planet. What we are talking about is where we are modifying the climate to actually cool it so we can address some of the issues of climate change. That's Andrea Hinwood, Chief Scientist for the United Nations Environment Program. Now, the idea of solar radiation modification is not a new concept. You might have heard of it called solar geoengineering or sunlight reflection. There are also several methods of potentially using this technology, including something called stratospheric aerosol injections. You just simply put a whole lot of chemicals up in the stratosphere you actually alter the chemistry, but what it also does is reflect a bit of sunlight back into space, and in doing so, cools the planet a little bit. The principle is similar to what happens after a volcanic eruption, which can sometimes cool the Earth for a brief period of time. Now, if that sounds like science fiction, that's because it is. In the movie Snowpiercer, Earth became a frozen wasteland after solar geoengineering goes horribly wrong. Now, in the real world, this technology is just speculative, but there seems to be growing interest. And that's why Andrea Hinwood says the United Nations is waiting in. So we kind of looked at all this information and thought, you know what, we better inform ourselves and also provide some information for others to actually try and understand what these technologies aim to do, 
what the status is of research and development and what should we, you know, where could we be focusing our efforts? So the UN convened an expert panel and in their report, they find there is not enough data to even think about the implementation of this technology anytime soon. They say the risks include damaging the ozone, making the climate worse in poorer countries, and ignoring the rights of Indigenous people. The report also says solar geoengineering does not remove carbon from the air or reduce greenhouse gas emissions, so it would not address the root causes of climate change. But that hasn't stopped people from trying. Mexico banned these experiments after a private startup launched balloons filled with sulfur dioxide particles in their airspace. The company claims they can cool the earth and are even selling cooling credits as carbon offsets. The UN report calls for global rules to manage the planet's stratosphere to prevent more of this kind of thing from happening. Other than national laws to protect a national environment, for example, Um, you don't have global governance of the stratosphere. The stratosphere protects us. So do we actually need to be looking at how we better protect that and understand what we're doing in that space? Now, on the same day the UN published its report, a group of more than 60 researchers released an open letter calling for an accelerated push to study solar radiation modification. But there are some who are dead set against it. Last year, more than 70 scientists published their open letter calling for an outright ban on the use of this technology before it ever gets off the ground. The group called on governments and the United Nations to prohibit national funding of solar geoengineering. They also call for a ban on outdoor experiments. These scientists urge the technology cannot be policed and that it could distract from decarbonizing. I absolutely understand where this group of scientists are coming from as well. But in many senses, this horse is well and truly bolted. Research is being undertaken in a number of locations. I think the risk is that most of it is theoretical and based on modelling. So let's understand it. Let's put some governance around it and then make well-informed decisions. In the meantime, Andrea Hinwood says the United Nations is well positioned to promote what she calls a globally inclusive conversation on solar geoengineering. And that means richer countries and poorer countries work on the research together and consult each other along the way. As you start to engage those communities, scientists and governments in the conversation, then you're actually co-designing a governance process that is inclusive. And I think that would be a really positive thing to see. And if that governance process enabled us to protect the stratosphere and protect planet Earth, then that's absolutely something we should all be supporting. The UN report says solar geoengineering should only be considered as a last resort to avoid things like extreme famine, drought, mass displacement, and other severe consequences of a rapidly warming planet. But Andrea Hinwood still has hope we won't have to resort to that at all. I'm actually optimistic because if we put our collective resources uh, you know, into solving the problems we've got, we don't need solar radiation modification. But human nature is to want to have a quick fix for something. 
right, let's go from science of the future to using technology to predict it. Before you leave the house, you might check the weather. Maybe you look to see if there will be rain or snow before pulling out the toboggan or going for a hike. Now, some scientists are working on other applications for this kind of forecasting. It's called ecological forecasting. For example, imagine not just knowing the temperature, but in the summertime, whether or not your favorite beach is safe for swimming, or if the ticks are especially bad in the area you want to hike in. A new Canadian paper applies this same idea to the threatened boreal caribou and their habitat. What on Earth producer Molly Siegel has more. Hi, Molly. Hi, Renee. All right, so weather forecasting for caribou. I am intrigued. Yes, but I also want to set the scene a little bit for you. So peaceful. Where are we? This is the Northwest Territories in the Wakaji Caribou Range. I love this. It's, it's such a beautiful sound. Yeah, the birds really are so soothing. And this is the boreal ecosystem that we're hearing right now. And it's actually where those caribou live, which is a mix of forest and peatlands. And of course, you can hear the birds, but you can't hear the caribou. So I spoke to Stephanie Behrens. She's a biologist with the Clicho government, one of the governments responsible for managing these boreal caribou. The southern portion of the Wikiji area covers the north arm of the Great Slave Lake. And at the north end of the Wikiji area is Great Bear Lake. Behrens is on the team that's working on what's called a range plan for the boreal caribou that live here. Because the animals are listed as threatened under the federal government's Species at Risk Act, 65% of their habitat needs to be, quote, undisturbed, essentially protected. Beyond that, Behrens explains, though, how having these boreal caribou is also important for the Kicho citizens. It allows us to practice our culture. Going out hunting is a part of our culture. Tanning hides, using these hides to sew and produce materials for our families and materials that we can wear and show off to the communities. All of these things are intertwined with the clinical culture and ensuring that we're able to maintain the habitat so that the caribou are able to sustain themselves is our highest priority. There is a big question, though, with climate change and the future of these caribou. What will their home the boreal region, look like? What does this mean for all wildlife, including the caribou, but also species like those birds we heard earlier? So Molly, I'm guessing that's where the forecasting comes in. Yes, you got that (laughs) correct. Francis Stewart is an assistant professor at Wilfrid Laurier University and a Canada Research Chair in Northern Wildlife Biology. Now, she walked me through the principles of forecasting. And Renee, let's just stick with weather first, since we know that one really well. So if you think of a weather forecast, you need to be bringing in information on temperature changes, on precipitation changes, on wind changes, and all of those things can be represented by different models. But unless those models are able to talk to each other, you don't have a forecast. You don't have a radar map. You don't have trend lines or predictions of what might happen the next day. We're starting to be able to do the same thing in ecology. And we're able to do it quickly. Quickly? 
easily, and then we repeat that again and again. So Renee, let's take that concept. And Frances and her team have applied that idea to the ecosystem where boreal caribou live. And that's what her and her colleagues' recent paper is about. Yeah, so to understand how we might expect caribou to change, we need to understand how their habitat is going to change. And so we need to know things like climate. We've also brought in information about fires. And importantly, how fire is going to change with climate change. We're expecting more frequent and larger fires um, as the climate warms. So the climate and fire pieces interact. And there's another piece of information used in their forecasts. The types of trees in the forest and how that could change. It's what biologists call range shift as the planet warms. So Molly, scientists are incorporating all these factors, trees, wildfire, and the climate into their caribou forecasts. But what exactly happens when they put all these pieces together? So Francis and her colleagues have developed a computer program where they can enter all of this information about each of these different things. And this program, by the way, is open source. So that means that other scientists can contribute to it, they can use it. So for their recent paper, the information they used, as you've said, is specifically about boreal caribou in the Northwest Territories. And by piecing all of these aspects together, the climate, tree species, and wildfire, they get a forecast. And it's different from a traditional wildlife management approach because the computer program lets all of these individual predictions interact. So it's dynamic. And it can absolutely be changed and updated as new information is gathered. All right. So this is their new paper taking in all of these factors. What does it say about the caribou forecast? Well, it's pretty much an okay news story. What we're seeing is that there will be large shifts in the northern boreal forests, and that's going to affect where caribou are expected to be found. What their forecasts show for boreal caribou in the Northwest Territories is a slight decline in caribou habitat by the end of this century. And Molly, we know there are so many challenges for caribou already, so this sounds like it's not good news. Yeah, I mean, you could say that this is the less good part of the news. But there is another side to this. The north end of the range for caribou will likely see more habitat. In other words, more of that boreal ecosystem than there is now. So that's what the forecast predicts. But what can you do with that information? How do you use it to protect a herd now and into the future? Well, when you consider that these caribou range plans have not usually factored in this type of information, it's actually helpful insight to have. So while it is an okay news story, to borrow Francis's words, it provides a lot more information, allowing wildlife managers to ask, hey, what does the future look like in a changing climate? And so they can look at those maps and say, well, we need to sort of look at a trade-off between conserving where caribou are today and conserving where caribou might be tomorrow, whether that's conservation through things such as protected areas or changes in um, hunting regulations or things such as, oh, well, maybe we should just not develop the lands where we expect caribou will need the habitat in the future. 
The government of Northwest Territories, the North Slave Métis Alliance, and the Quicho government are the ones in this case who would be making those decisions. So I asked Stephanie Behrens, the wildlife biologist with the Quicho government, who we heard from earlier, what she thinks about this tool. I think it's a very useful tool. And I really wanted to stress the importance of implementing traditional knowledge with this type of work and how it complements the science side of it. She and her team are also running their own models. Now for her, Western science, for example, things like putting collars on caribou and traditional knowledge, or what many call TK, those two things are working together. It's really important that we're incorporating TK because that's local knowledge of the area and that's first-hand knowledge of where they are seeing caribou. Yes, we have scientific data where collars are used and it shows where the caribou are moving, but we can also verify that with the TK And Molly, that is something we're hearing more and more about, this collaborative method using traditional knowledge. Now, we've talked about caribou, but can this computer program create forecasts for other wild animals? Yeah, it can. And right now, Frances Stewart and her colleagues have lots of data about the different bird species in the boreal region of the Northwest Territories. Here they are again. In fact, their forecasts are available online. So, like the Weather Network, but for the future of bird habitat? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you could say that's kind of what they're working on, but it will maybe be updated a little less frequently. Uh, Frances Stewart and her colleagues want this information readily available, though, for any wildlife manager who wants it. And that's why it's public. They don't want this research to just be published in a journal. That's the starting point. In theory, if you had the data about different species, you could create other forecasts. And she mentioned in this specific boreal ecosystem, they could easily do the same thing for moose and wolves. But as I learned more about this idea more generally of ecological forecasting, it actually turns out that there are people all over the world working on this and for so many other applications. All right, let's dig into it. Tell me about some of the other people using ecological forecasts. Michael Dietz is one of those people, and he actually runs a lab called the Ecological Forecasting Laboratory at Boston University. What it comes down to for him is that the old ways we were managing the environment with climate change, those don't really check out anymore. If you step back and think about the traditional approaches to environmental management, they're based on this idea of of kind of referencing historical norms, so the idea of a historical species range or you know, a 50-year flood or that a fire regime may burn on average every 40 years. You have these historical norms as your points of reference for management. But we live in an era now where all of those historical norms are changing. You know, things that are, you know, once in a hundred events are becoming things that happen multiple times a decade. Sometimes we talk about climate change being a new normal. It's not really a new normal in the sense that It's a state of continuous readjustment. If your baselines are changing on a continuous basis, you have to take a new approach to thinking about how you do environmental management. And this is where we think ecological forecast comes in. That is so interesting to me, Molly, the idea that nothing is really a new normal, that it's just that continuous state of readjustment. Because we hear that term new normal all the time. 
Yeah, it's a bit misleading, isn't it? That's why I think this work is so interesting. And they do this work in collaboration with communities because they want to make sure that they're getting it right. They want to make sure that these forecasts are actually useful in the real world. And he imagines a future where these types of forecasts are just a totally normal part of life that we could take for granted. Um, and, and maybe it's even something that private industry could help pay for. Bring it to the masses to scale it up to make it a more common part of everyday life. Like, you know, I pick up my phone and check the weather forecast, you know, at least once or twice a day to see what's likely to come. And, and we don't have, we don't have society using ecological forecasts in the same way. So one example with our tick forecast, you know, we'd love to get to a point where before my wife takes the kids to, you know, soccer practice or softball practice, check the tick forecast and see like, what's the risk of encountering ticks on these sports fields when we go out there today versus some other point of time or if I'm planning a, a hike with a family. So that's me checking my phone more frequently for more forecasts, which I don't know if it's great, but I can imagine a tick forecast that sounds so useful, especially, you know, since people are seeing so many more of them with climate change and they can carry Lyme disease. Yeah, exactly. In a way, it, it's like, oh, it's something else to be anxious about. But, it was, <laughs> but it's also information to help you, you know, manage those risks, right? And with ticks, for example, it's really bad where Michael Dietz lives in, in Massachusetts. And I think our listeners in parts of eastern Canada can really relate to that because the ticks are really bad out there, too. What other examples is his lab working on? They have an algal bloom forecast that they're working on at Sunapee Lake in New Hampshire. You know, to be able to plan a trip to the beach in advance and have the ability to check, you know, what's the, the likelihood that there's going to be an algal blue? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go to a different beach or maybe I'll put this off. Now, beaches close in the summer because of algae that could make swimming dangerous. So I guess the difference here is that they can detect it before it happens rather than during the outbreak? Yeah, exactly. That in theory, they could prevent people being exposed to this toxic algae rather than closing down a beach after the fact. And ultimately, this forecasting in general, it allows us to be proactive. And there's another interesting example out of Virginia Tech that I learned about. Academics at that university are collaborating with the Western Virginia Water Authority, so a water treatment facility. And for the past few years, they've been collecting data on one of their reservoirs and building a forecast. And they plan to do the same thing for their other reservoirs, too. And I imagine climate change is something they're watching. Yes, that's one of the factors for sure that's going to affect drinking water all over. And it, one of the ways it'll affect that is the increased temperatures in lakes. Well, those algal blooms we talked about at the beach, those don't discriminate, right? So they're also going to appear more frequently in reservoirs, which could again compromise the safety um, of drinking water for people. So once this is up and running, if they know that a toxic algal bloom will happen, they could switch over to another reservoir in advance. This is Jamie Morris with the Western Virginia Water Authority. If you can predict when you might see an increase in algal bloom, there might be things that you could do to mitigate that as it comes into the treatment process or you may be able to shift your demand. If you have multiple sources that are feeding a certain area, you might be able to avoid bringing water in from one particular plant and put demand on a different plant. So we're definitely seeing a lot of, a lot of different changes with the, the climate. Now, Molly, I, I know you've mentioned it's still in progress, but I can really imagine how useful this would be for safety and how this proactive approach would be so helpful as things in our environment become less predictable. 
Yeah, I mean, that's what Michael Dietz was saying earlier, that there's no consistency with climate change. And if that's one of the hallmarks of climate change, giving ourselves tools to live in a world that's less predictable is a type of adaptation that our communities can use in some very practical ways. Now, the last two examples are American, but I could imagine them really working anywhere, especially here in Canada. You know, interestingly, the Virginia Tech team has gotten visitors from Ireland, from Spain, and also from Saskatchewan. But here in Canada, there is so much more that could be done, even with the wildlife forecasting computer program that Frances Stewart and her colleagues are using. And she says, for example, it can inform things like the federal government meeting its promise to the United Nations to protect 30% of land by 2030. There's many new protected areas going into northern Canada. So it's really a critical area for these types of considerations. Canada's north is also warming at two to four times the global average. So by placing protected areas in regions today without considering what those regions are going to look like tomorrow, you risk not protecting effective areas for biodiversity conservation. Well, Molly, I predict we'll be watching this story in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you, Renee. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Brene Filipponi and for Laura Lynch. Coming up. When I'm out working in community, I'm nurturing community, I'm mothering the land and allowing it to reciprocate that energy. We'll hear how 50 women in the U.S., one for each state, are taking on climate change. Governments around Canada have banned TikTok from official devices, But the app continues to drive trends and push people to buy. From fast fashion unboxings to viral water bottle brands to the latest, greatest lip gloss. Lately, though, there's been a bit of a backlash. Okay, de-influencing, let's go. Oh, y'all want to be de-influenced, huh? The hashtag de-influencing has racked up hundreds of millions of views on TikTok over the past few weeks. We checked back in with a couple of Canadian TikTok creators for their take. You know, younger people have been so bombarded by all of this influencer marketing, influencing, and we're kind of sick of it. Hazel Thayer is a video creator and climate activist in Victoria, B.C. Her handle? Hazel is online. De-influencing is basically like, it's kind of a movement against being constantly marketed to. And then it's also a genre of video or article or what have you, where like the influencer, the person will say, don't buy this product. You don't need this. Uh, I think a great example is like an avocado holder. You don't need an avocado holder. You can just put the avocado in a bowl of water. 
Now, as a very regular TikTok user, let me explain what she's talking about. A popular TikTok tip says storing your avocados in a bowl of water keeps them fresh. Now, for Hazel, the idea of buying less stuff isn't new. I have long been a proponent of the idea that everybody has way too much crap in their house. Everybody buys too much stuff. So why has de-influencing taken off on TikTok now? I think it's happening as a reaction to both, you know, the constant marketing that we're experiencing. And I think the other part of it is just that nobody has as much money as we used to. And so spending money when you don't need to is no longer cool. Now, de-influencing began with TikTok's beauty influencers, who started recommending inexpensive alternatives to viral makeup brands. Some say it's a way to build trust with followers and simply sell more stuff. But personal finance TikTok creators jumped on the trend as well, reminding followers that buying more than you need is bad for your budget. For those on the climate side of TikTok, de-influencing can be a tool to remind people to curb their consumption. My particular de-influencer moment was telling people that most cheap fast fashion is made of plastic and plastic is made of petroleum. So your pleather, your polyester, your elastic, you know, I can't buy polyester sheets anymore because I think about how I'm sleeping in petroleum and it grosses me out. Bro, you're wearing oil on your body. That's nasty. It gives me the ick. I can't do it. Every person I've ever told that to has been like, oh, ew, I don't want to buy that stuff anymore. So hopefully that catches on because fast fashion is definitely no good for the planet. I have never thought of polyester as as wearing oil, so eye-opening for me as well. And Hazel's not the only climate TikToker who's joined the de-influencing trend. I am a huge believer in the fact that overconsumption is the culprit for many of our problems, including climate change. That's Ontario sustainability advocate Karishma Porwal. She posts under the handle Karishma Climate Girl. She agrees there's a backlash underway against overspending. We're seeing this sort of dystopian almost content of very rich people flexing their wealth on social media, flexing their massive houses and their wardrobes and their closets. And it's just alienating so many people. I really think that the zeitgeist on social media right now is people feeling alienated by celebrities that once they looked up to and Now we're trying to tell ourselves we don't need everything that they tell us we need. Here's how we can make our day-to-day lives easier by saving some money. Karishma posted a de-influencing TikTok of her own. Well, you could buy an expensive hair mask or you could use coconut oil. I do coconut oil masks about once every two weeks. Leave it in overnight and then... Uh, I wanted to partake in the trend, but in a cheeky sustainability tree hugger type way. Uh, So I was plugging coconut oil in that video. I've been using coconut oil for everything since I was younger, as have many South Asian women, as a hair mask, as a cuticle oil, as a lash serum. And it's worked. And I think what I was trying to portray with that video is a lot of the time we can find one product that does a ton of different things. Who knew coconut oil was just so versatile? But coconut oil aside, Karishma does have a few product sponsorships herself. She says she chooses brands that align with her values of sustainability and ethical production. Aside from the impact on climate, she sees other problems with the glorification of overconsumption on social media. 
I think it also has an impact on our mental health as well. These consumption videos in general tie our happiness to the material things that we own, right? XYZ from Amazon changed my life or five things from Amazon you need to do well in school this year. You don't need anything from Amazon to do well in school this year. You don't really need many things to feel good about yourself in the first place. And, I, you know, that's the ideal state for me is where I could detach myself from the material things I own and still be happy with, like, the people in my life and the hobbies that I have. So as someone who's long been posting about overconsumption, she had mixed feelings when de-influencing started taking off on TikTok. I was a little ticked off. We've been talking about this for years as sustainability creators. But hey, that's fine. At the end of the day, you know, the more people talk about de-influencing, the better. I just hope it's here to stay, right? I just hope that these big fashion and beauty creators that are de-influencing are doing it the right way, first of all, and don't have ulterior motives around, hey, go to my Amazon storefront to buy this instead. Hazel Thayer hopes de-influencing isn't just another TikTok trend to make money for influencers, but that it represents a long-term cultural shift. It's very cheesy, but money can't buy happiness. I think that with the younger generation being more like sustainability-minded, thinking more about the climate, it probably will stick around. If not being called de-influencing, just just a general decrease in our crazy consumerist culture, I think that's going to stick around. I really hope it sticks around. People will often ask me, you know, what they can do to help the climate. The biggest individual action, you know, you can recycle, you can change your light bulbs, but like buying less stuff, that's the best thing you can do for the planet. <laughs> it's reduce, then reuse, then recycle, right? There's a saying, when women support each other, incredible things happen. In the United States, one woman is doing just that. Mallory McDuff has penned a book profiling some of the women in the climate justice movement. Well, more than some. It's called Love Your Mother, 50 States, 50 Stories, and 50 Women United for Climate Justice, and it's hitting shelves next month. Mallory McDuff is a professor of environmental education at Warren Wilson College in North Carolina, and she joins me now. Hello. Hi, it's great to be here. Well, there are thousands of women, Mallory, in this climate justice movement in the United States alone, but you chose to focus on one from each state. How difficult was that, the process of searching, narrowing down and, and focusing and finding that that one woman? Well, it it wasn't easy, and I think the the good news is that it wasn't easy. There are so many people who are doing this work in, in a diversity of settings. You know, I profiled poets, farmers, oceanographers, climate scientists, students, teachers, lawyers, moms. And that's the good news, right? There were so many people I could have chosen. Um, what, How I ended up choosing each woman was really a part of a bigger puzzle. You know, I wanted a diversity from ages to race and ethnicity to vocation to rural urban settings. And so it was really part of trying to just piece together this puzzle that would reflect a diversity of on multiple scales. Your book does focus on some of those big names in, in climate justice, but you know, also you focus and profile women doing things on a much smaller scale in, in their communities. So how important is it that though that work 
um, that often goes unnoticed gets the attention it deserves? Well, I think it's so important. And part of the reason why it's important is, you know, for me, I'm one mom, one teacher, one writer in one little town, you know, in North Carolina. And it can feel like um, what one individual is doing is not enough. But the take home for me from this book is it really is, I mean, it's not the individual, which is obvious. We can't, one individual can't like overtake the whole fossil fuel industry. But I really found in these stories that individual acts in collective create momentum that propels change. You know, folks who were community leaders at a small scale were tapping into other, you know, other organizations, other, um, other groups, or were affecting political change. Um, and so that to me was what was really so so hopeful about you know, the collective of these stories. Um, so one of the other reasons I wrote this was for was for my students to give them examples. You know, if they were interested in, in poetry, well, let me show you this story because this you, you can be a poet and you can make an impact on climate. And we actually have two of the women that you profiled have been listening in on this chat, and we're going to bring them into this conversation now. Uh, Mackenzie Feldman is originally from Hawaii and is with the group Rewild Campus. And Tiffany Belfield Alamine is a farmer, birth doula, and restaurant owner based in Kentucky. Hello to you both. Hi. Thanks so much for having us. Well, thank you both for joining us. Mackenzie, let's start with you. Uh, Your climate activism, I read the chapter about you in the book, centers around banning herbicides from campuses across the U.S. But my understanding, and, and from what I read, is the story behind it all started on the volleyball court. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in Hawaii and in high school, I really learned about this issue of toxic pesticides and herbicides because Hawaii is ground zero for industrial agriculture and they do a lot of testing of GMO corn seed and testing the the seeds resistance to pesticides. And it wasn't until I went off to college at UC Berkeley and when I was a junior one day at practice, you know, our courts are outside. There's vegetation surrounding the courts. And our coach said, if the ball rolls off the court, just let it go because an herbicide had been sprayed everywhere around the court. We uh, wanted to do something about this and talk to the grounds manager of the athletics. And he said, you know, he just didn't have the staff to pick the weeds. But if our team wanted to pick the weeds, then great, he wouldn't spray this anymore. And, And what he was spraying was Ranger Pro, which has the active ingredient glyphosate and that had been declared a probable carcinogen. And so essentially we we took this model to the rest of the campus and built a student movement and got Berkeley to go. Now it's it's 95% organic. And essentially that was the start of, of our national movement. You're from Hawaii. You're part native Hawaiian. How does that inform your quest to ban these herbicides uh, in schools? Yeah, I'm I'm so proud to be native Hawaiian. And I think it's it's just a huge part of Hawaiian culture to care for the aina, for the land. And you have this kuleana or this just sense of responsibility. I mean, like all, you know, indigenous cultures, there's this sense of stewarding for all future generations. And Hawaiians have and and had, you know, just some of the most astounding, just remarkable um, ways of managing land and these ahupua'as from mountain to the sea. Um 
in just in just ways that were really um, regenerative and and forward thinking. And so I think no matter if you're Hawaiian or not, just growing up in Hawaii, you have this sense of responsibility because you live on an island. Like there's nowhere to go if you deplete your natural resources. And I think that uh, definitely shaped my understanding of the natural world. And Mackenzie, just before I head over to, to speak with Tiffany about about what she's doing in her communities, can you sort of describe to us and explain a bit about the link between herbicides and climate change? For one thing, herbicides, pesticides, fertilizers, they are petroleum-based, you know, they're fossil fuel-derived. Another, just when you're spraying these these toxins in farm fields or, you know, on in parks or campuses, you're depleting the soil. But when we build healthy soil, we're able to retain water, we're able to sequester carbon, um, really like can build healthy soil in a way that can help mitigate climate change. And so these are, these chemicals are inherently linked and, and with fertilizers, you know, they run off into the water and they cause algae blooms. Like there's just so many ties and Tiffany, let's bring you in here as well. I thank you so much for joining us. I understand you had a late night, uh, overworked all night in your work as a doula, and I'm sure that is very rewarding work. But you also um, primarily work with black farmers in Kentucky as well on on what you call food justice. Uh, what does that look like to you in the context of climate change? Well, there's a lot going on with climate change, a lot of resources, um, a lot of funding to help support um, the Kentucky farmer grower here because we are being, you know, directly impacted by climate change right now as part of the Kentucky stays underwater. Um, and so when you have crisis situations happening, you have to un- understand that there is always going to be a minority or a underrepresented pot of people that may not have accessibility to the resource or relationship with folks who are giving resources to help with technical assistance and um, funding projects to, you know, continue to grow longer throughout the year. And so, you know, my job is to really pull those resources out and bring them into the BIPOC community, to the BIPOC farmers. You are yourself a fourth generation Black farmer. How does your family's legacy play into that work that you're doing? Well, my great grandfather, yes, the land that I live on now and was you know raised on, it, he was there. That was his land that he sharecropped on and then bought. And so, the, the the stories you hear from like my grandmother and my aunts and my uncles is that who I am now is a path that has been created since then, um, as rights were being um, given and you know, we were, you know, having more accessibility to land ownership and all the things. So it's not something that um, is not already in me, but even bigger than that, um, there's a lot of heirs property issues and, you know, you just add all the things on to, you know, your house being flooded and or going through severe drought. Um, It it just kind of adds up and I want to be an example. Like I'm, I'm going through these resources with them um, and me being a, you know, generational farmer, but being a minority farmer and all these things, um, I'm definitely trying to use myself and the example and the land um, to help support other farmers like myself. Let's bring Mallory, the author of this book, back into the discussion. The book really focuses on a, a wide range of women doing very different things in very different ways. What do you anticipate the chapters about and how the chapters about Tiffany and Mackenzie will resonate with readers? 
well, first, the stories are are inspiring, you know, um, and so, but I, I think inspiration sometimes can, to me can be overwhelming. Like if somebody's so epic that you don't think you could ever do what they are doing. I, and, and I don't get that. So with Mackenzie and Tiffany, I get the sense from their stories that um, honestly, like love, love of land, love of people, um, love of family, love of, of friends, love was at the center of, of both of their stories. And so from their stories, I, to me, the message is, you know, it's not too late. And this is a love story that isn't over yet. I think they perfectly fit into the concept you also spoke about in the introduction of your book when people focus a lot of attention on the Greta Thunbergs of the world, that sort of hero environmentalist. And it, and it can make you feel like, well, what can I do in, in my position? And I think both of these stories are are women doing active things in, in their communities. Right. Right. And and active things based on not like I'm going to be an activist, but active things based on, wait, this is something I love that is threatened and there is a better way. Mackenzie, what role do women play in climate justice and leadership from from what you've seen and what you'd like to see going forward? I just love working with women. Our team is all women. And that wasn't even something that we set out to do. It was just something one day we found, oh, wow, our team is all women. We should keep it this way because this is awesome. And I just find women to be amazing collaborators and connectors and, you know, just the type of thing, just um, like in this way, like Mallory, I'm so thankful you brought us both in and just getting to hear Tiffany's story. Like you're so inspiring, Tiffany. And now, you know, we'll have lifelong comrades, fellow women who are climate leaders. And I think, I, I really think like any, women can play any role. It really is about finding what it is that you like to do. Do you like to teach? Do you like to do art? Do you like to farm? Um, but I think that in my experience, women have been really just like good, good connectors and always willing to be like, oh, wow, you should talk to this person. You're super aligned. I think you could work together on this. But we need everyone. We need we need the men too. We need everybody. Uh, Tiffany, why do you think women can play such a key role uh, in climate activism? You know, I was sitting here thinking about it. And I feel like if I had to use myself, like why I do it, uh, because I feel like we have like a village and we all vibrate on the same frequency. It's really because we have that... Um, like that maternal instinct. And I feel like when I'm out working in community, I'm nurturing community. I'm mothering the land and allowing it to reciprocate that energy. Um, and it's just in us to be that way. And that energy is a feminine energy. So anybody can possess it. Uh, but I think us as woman, it's like, it, it's just in us. Uh, we want to protect, you know, we want to cultivate um, and, and it, and it seems like it rings true. And I forget who has quoted this, but it's like the condition of the community is based on the condition of the woman. So if we're doing good and we're in solidarity, usually we're creating, you know, all these awesome things and working in collaboration. And Mallory, yeah. jumping off that, you, you talk about the climate crisis and political divisions in the U.S. and around the world. And you really explore the fact that, you know, conversation can help bridge those gaps. What role do you think women can play and, and again, should play in those conversations? Well, you know, I think um, the woman I quoted, Catherine Hayhoe, um, who ha has been so instrumental to, to me and, and to many people on really pushing the idea that most people in their daily life don't hear friends and family talk about the climate. And one of the things we can do is just to talk about it. 
and and not to talk about it with the 10% of people who are dismissive in the US, but you know, that leaves 90% of people who want their kids to drink safe water, you know, who want their children to feel comfortable having kids who, if they choose to, um, people who share connecting on shared values, I think is that's, that's the place where conversation can start. You know, what are shared values that we have um, and, and how can we uh, potentially um, work together? I'd love to ask each of you at this point, you know, who the women are in your life um, that you consider your own uh, personal climate heroes. Uh, Mackenzie, who, who stands out for you? Oh my gosh, so many people. I mean, I think just mm-hmm. the first one that comes to mind is my mom. I mean, That's what I knew she, she was going to say that. <laughs> she was really the the one who got me interested in this and in high school and she would send me to school with, you know, here's the research about why pesticides are bad, like educate your peers about it, like get into debates and stuff and we actually just wrote a book together. It's a, a cookbook, but also similar to this where we highlight different leaders in the food system and so it's just um, just the the title of this book, like Love Your Mother, it really is speaks close to my heart. Tiffany, how about you? So the first person that popped in my head was my grandmother. Um, she was a horticulturalist. The reason why I, I've always kept my feet and hands in the dirt or my grandparents, but my grandmother, um, she made it religious. And Mallory, I feel like this this question for you is redundant because you had a whole book to talk about the 50, <laughs> all the women who inspire you. But is there someone, you know, maybe that you didn't get to mention in, in this book that is your climate hero? And in, in the conclusion of the book, you know, I, I talk about um, my mom's influence on me. And, and she, like Tiffany's grandmother, I believe, um, it really tied her her faith. She We grew up Episcopalian, and she really tied that into you know, love of the land and in a way that I didn't really think about it quite honestly as a kid until my mom's death. And, and then I really, in hindsight, was able to see that the religious values and um, the values of caring for community and caring for the earth were, you know, very, very integral to, to her. So she, she'd be my, my first person I would mention. And I guess it's so fitting, your your book being titled Love Your Mother, that all three of you sort of named maternal figures mm. um, in your life as as that inspiration, you know, maybe not the only inspiration, but definitely a, a big factor in, in the work that, that you're all doing. Well, I just want to thank all three of you uh, for sharing your stories and, and what's inspired you in the work you're doing. Mallory, Mackenzie and Tiffany, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Now, here's a quick look at other climate stories in the news. Environmental and Indigenous groups went to federal court last week to challenge Ottawa's approval of the Bay du Nord offshore oil project. One of the interveners is Megmoel de Bludahan Incorporated. It's a political organization consisting of nine First Nations in New Brunswick. The group's co-chair is Natawahaneg Chief George Ganesh. He told the CBC the federal government did not consult his community on Bay du Nord and that the project could severely affect Atlantic salmon. We're concerned that a fish that is presently struggling to survive because of climate change, because of predation and, and commercial fishery, is, is uh, this is another potential major challenge to, to that survival and, and to you know, our community being able to retain you know, such an important uh, cultural source of food for us. 
The federal government says it will not comment on the court case, but noted the environmental review was rigorous and thorough. A northern Alberta First Nation is demanding answers after discovering industrial wastewater has been seeping out of an oil sands tailings pond since last May. The Athabasca Chippewayan First Nation chief says Imperial Oil, an Alberta's energy regulator, knew it was happening months before they notified him. The nation is telling community members not to consume any game, fish or plants harvested from the area since last spring. Municipal officials say the drinking water appears to be safe, and Imperial Oil says there have been no impacts on water or wildlife. For its part, the regulator says notifying affected people about leaks isn't its job. And painted pink in protest. A three-meter-tall woolly mammoth display at the Royal BC Museum was defaced by protesters attempting to draw attention to climate change. The washable paint was put on the now-extinct animal's tusks. The group behind it says the federal government's inaction on the climate emergency is criminal. And if you're wondering whether throwing stuff at treasures and museums can do anything for climate action, you should check out an interview we did back in October of last year about throwing soup at art. You'll find it by searching What on Earth and the episode's title, Putting a Price on Nature. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. Before we go, I want to tell you what's coming up on next week's show. In northeastern British Columbia, in a place called Montney Basin, is a long, winding river. It's the Blueberry River, and it's the heart of the Blueberry River First Nations. The river used to provide clean, crisp drinking water, but that's a thing of the past. Years of unchecked oil and gas development have recently pushed the community into crisis mode. They were able to swim in Blueberry River and drink from Blueberry River. That is not a current practice. And in 2017, the Blueberry River ran dry for the first time in recorded memory. The Blueberry River land is also at a climate crossroads. It sits atop Canada's largest fossil fuel reserve, what environmentalists call a carbon bomb. But Blueberry River recently won a court battle that forces companies to consult them before any development can happen. CBC investigative reporter Tara Carmen has just returned from reporting in Blueberry River First Nations. She'll join us next week. And that's all for this week. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker, producers Rachel Sanders, Rohit Joseph, and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Renee Filipponi, and for Laura Lynch, thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.